Today's scripture is going to be found in Job 18, 1 through 4. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week in in chapter 17, uh, we saw that Job was speaking about his house and his bed. And what he was talking about there and what he was referring to is where he is going to after death. And his hope is that he's going to be vindicated after death by God. That even despite all the suffering, all the accusations that his friends has hurled at him, He is confident and he's fully trusting that he would be vindicated by God and death. And so today in chapter 18, we're going to see Bildad's answer to Job's claims. And in summary, he's going to tell Job, I know where you're going, Job, and it's not where you think. It's not going to be good. There's not going to be vindication. You are on the road to hell and there's no exit ramp. In fact, Job, you can expect more of the same. So this morning... We are confronted with the reality of life after death, heaven and hell. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. Um, So it's going to be heavy. I just want to say right up front, it's been a hard couple of weeks wrestling with this passage, thinking about this final destination for the wicked. And so if you're in here, if you're not used to church, if you're not a regular at Foothill, just know we don't talk about hell all the time, but we will talk about the things that come up in scripture so that we can teach biblically about it. If you're a parent and your students are in here and it's heavy for them, just have a conversation with them. Students, I encourage you to lean in and listen to the reality of what's here. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, this is so important for us to hear. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better for us to go to the house of the morning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. That verse is telling us that it's better to be around death and think about death than it is to go to a party. Because a party is a mindless affair, and yet death makes us consider the things of life that really matter. What's going to happen to people when they die? The first time that I was confronted with death, at least the first time that I remember it, was when I was a junior in high school. And my tennis coach, his name was Minor, um, he was an amazing man. He, he came and he was giving me private tennis lessons and, and he was really transforming me into a pretty good high school player and turning me into someone that could potentially go play for college. And he was correcting my game and he gave me kind of courage to be who I was on the court as a, as a smaller person but an aggressive person. But he also looked at me and he said, Steve, you are not a Christian when you are on the court. He was a believer. He's like, Steve, you're tantrums. You're trying to hit your opponent with the ball. You breaking rackets. You throwing things. Like, that is not going to happen. There's one time I actually yelled at my mom while she was cheering me on. I'm like, oh, seriously, it was not good. And this man, Minor, was, was, he was like, he was the first one to really take me, and, take me aside and say, Steve, you have to be an ambassador of Christ. And I owe a lot of my faith and my tennis game to him. And I remember there was one day, it was the day of my tennis lessons, and we got a call from uh, the the club and said, Steve, you're not going to have practice today. And I'm like, okay. He's like, that's because Minor passed away today. He died. And he had um, a really bad case of shingles. 
And he, uh, it was months and months of just excruciating pain and suffering. And they found him dead in his apartment. And there's still this huge mystery, even today, that people don't really know what happened. And I remember it just left me in this place of like, what is going on? God, why would you do this? How could this happen to this man? What am I supposed to do? It rocked me so much to the point that I couldn't even go to his memorial service because I didn't want to cry in front of other people because I didn't want to be confronted with the feelings that I had. And it's because we hate death, don't we? It's an enemy. It's not the way that God created things to be. And some of us ignore it like I did. Some of us kind of talk about it in a way to soften it a little bit. And sometimes we talk that way because we don't have a biblical understanding of heaven and hell. And if that's the case, it means we are thinking about the biggest things in life wrongly. We have this opportunity this morning to hear some truth and consider the importance of knowing Christ, knowing what life after death holds for the Christian and the non-Christian. And if we don't know what the Bible says, it leads to all kinds of popular and unbiblical ideas about hell. Just think of a few. The idea of purgatory, right? That we're going to die and that we're going to go in kind of this resting place and that based on our goodness or our badness or based on what other people do who are still on earth on our behalf, we might just be able to get into heaven. Or the idea that love wins. This was a really popular idea about 10 to 12 years ago. That God is too kind, that he's too loving, that he's a friend of ours. And he would never send us someone to hell. He would never want someone to suffer like that. And it's this idea that really hell doesn't exist. Somehow in the end, God's love is going to win. It's this it's this religious construct just to scare people into belief, just to join the, the club and drink the Kool-Aid. Or I think one that I thought of when I was in high school because of shows or movies or even songs, I thought hell was the place where Satan was reigning, that he was living it up, that he was partying with his demons and all his followers who loved evil. And yes, God's not going to be there, but they wanted to re reject God. And they actually get to do all the things that they want to for all eternity, even though they're all wrong. None of these things are the way that the Bible describes hell. And hell is sobering and it brings balance to our faith. So that's why it's good for us to be confronted with this this morning. Because we're going to get to talk about the harshness of hell, but the joy of heaven. We're going to get to talk about the really bad news that comes along with sin and the really good news that comes along with the gospel. The reality of hell is where Bildad turns us and takes us to in chapter 18. And you've heard it often in this series that all the friends, there are some things that they get right, there are some things that they get wrong, and there are some things that they just flat out miss because it hasn't been revealed to them yet. They don't know it. They don't have the Bible. And this chapter is no different. So if you're kind of thinking of our outline this morning, we're going to look at what Bildad got wrong, we're going to look at what Bildad got right, and what Bildad was missing. So let's start with verses 1 through 4, where we're going to see what Bildad got wrong. So read with me. 
Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? So what's Bildad saying here? He's telling Job that he is wrong. That if he wants any vindication in death, it is just not going to happen. And that's because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Job is not innocent. He's a wicked man. And it's foolish for a wicked man to think that he will be vindicated after death. In fact, he deserves what he's getting. And if you see that, it says he's hunting for words. The idea there is that Job is a person just like all the other evil people in the world who are playing word games. If you ever talk to someone like this, they're so good at turning the subject or saying something that makes you feel a little bit stupid or makes you feel like, oh, what are you? And it makes you get distracted from the main idea. That's what's going on here. Bildad is telling Job that all of his words about life, about death, about suffering, they just don't make sense. They don't line up with any of the worldviews that they know to be true. And Bildad tells him, you just need to stop you need to think and you need to just consider what's going on in your life. He's like, dude, Job, look at your life. It's horrible. You're suffering. And it's not God who's tearing you to pieces like you said several chapters ago. It's you yourself. It's your sin. It's your own anger over the consequences and the suffering that you're feeling. And you're pouring on extra grief because you simply won't accept it. You won't believe that God is doing what he's supposed to do. That's because Bildad doesn't fully understand Job and he doesn't fully understand God. In verse four, he, he says, God is this God of order. And I want to make that clear. He's right there. God is a God of order. But Bildad's conclusion about God is that because he's a God of order, everything has to fit perfectly together. It has to make sense. Humans have to be able to understand it. And we know that's not true. God is above us. His ways are not our ways. It doesn't always make sense to us. And Bildad says, because God is a God of order, because he gives people what they deserve, he is unable and unwilling to rescue sinners who are on the road to hell. In fact, he's saying, Job, God can't do anything about that. He's like, if God does that, he would have to remake and reset the whole world. He looks Job in the face and says, you want us just to abandon logic and reality for your sake, just so you feel good about yourself, just so that your faulty argument will work in your head. It's like, no, that cannot happen. That's because the key idea in Bildad's thinking where he goes wrong is the word place. Everything has to have its place. There's an order in this world. So what's happening to Job is exactly what's supposed to be happening to Job. Everything fits nicely together and Job, we're not gonna let you rock the boat. This idea of innocent suffering, that God's at fault, we cannot allow that. So no, Job, God is not going to move a rock for you. He will not move a mountain for you. That's what he says there in verse four. He will not vindicate you. He will not change his ways. He has placed you on the road to hell and only a wicked person would be put there. He doubles down. He puts God in a box because everything has to have its place. And he takes what he knows of Job, what he thinks he knows of Job. He takes what he thinks he knows of God 
And he makes this faulty conclusion that because you're suffering, Job, you will go to hell. And he launches into a powerful sermon on what hell is going to be like. And he tells Job and us a very strong description of the final resting place for the wicked. And he says, Job, it's going to be a continuation of all that you're already experiencing. So buckle up because it's a lot. And it is a lot. But this is what Bildad gets right. Okay? So he got wrong that first part. But verse 5 through 21, we're going to see what Bildad got right. And what Bildad gets right is that hell is a real place of terrible consequence. Bildad paints an accurate picture of the suffering that awaits the wicked who will spend eternity in hell. Hell is all the things that Bildad says it is. So what's hell going to be like? We're going to see six things, okay? The first one is, hell is a place of total darkness. Read with me in verses 5 through 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of the fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Four times in these two verses, Bildad refers to light. Light is the symbol of blessing, of life, of happiness. And Bildad's point is, Job, you don't have any of those in your life right now. Why would you possibly think that you can look forward to it after death? His point is that a wicked man is destined for all the opposite things. Darkness, cursing, death, and sadness. He's going to make his bed in complete darkness. And there's not even going to be a glimmer of hope there. Not even a glimmer of light. And one of the things that I want you to see, why I believe that Bildad is right, because each and every one of these descriptions is actually confirmed in Scripture. Some of them are going to sound almost identical. But we're going to see these ideas confirmed that, yes, this is the accurate picture of hell and the final uh, persecution and suffering of the wicked. And in Jude 13, it warns, us, it warns the readers of the final judgment of the wicked false teachers. And it says that for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And we see in the book of Matthew all throughout that it's not just false teachers. It says all the wicked people will be casted out into utter darkness. Again, we're talking about judgment, doom, fear, darkness. Imagine pitch black. All the lights went down here. But it's an unfamiliar place where there's no light. There's no life. There's no happiness. Bildad says, look, that is what hell is going to be like. But that's not all. Not only will there be no light, Bildad says you will also be trapped there forever. Read verses 7 through 10 with me. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. That first section is about light, and this section is all about the idea of being trapped. So we have the words net, mesh, trap, snare, and rope. All these pictures of the ways that we get stuck. And Bildad says it's because of your ways, your wickedness. It's the rightful punishment for what you deserve. 
And that idea there of the, the strong steps is this idea of a man who was prosperous, but then got found out and lost everything. And that once that happens, he is stuck and he's trapped. Have you ever felt trapped before? In a situation or a circumstance where you didn't think you could get out? It's a couple of those moments in my life, but one that I remember is when I was in elementary school. And I had a group of friends that we all lived in this neighborhood of within three blocks of each other. And we always played sports after school. I love sports. I love athletics. I love winning. So I'm super competitive. And that day was no different. And so we we're playing a game and it was this really tight game. And um, there's two outs against our opponents, even though they were my friends. And I was playing on the, this third base side of this little field that it was all fenced in. It was like the perfect distance for us to be able to hit home runs, but not every time. And uh, I'm playing over there and I'm like, we got to get this guy out so that we can get up and we can win this game. So he hits this little pop up over to my side. And I remember thinking, this is my moment. This is my moment for, for my moment for my ESPN highlight. This is going on my reel for life, right? And so I go over there. I'm like, this is going to go over this fence, but I'm going to rob it. I'm going to catch that ball. I'm going to jump up. So I remember jumping up and I reach up and I just missed the ball. My hand goes over, the glove falls off and I get stuck. On the top of the fence, I didn't notice are those little barbs like this. And literally one is just sticking right up in my wrist. And I still got the scar here. It wasn't bleeding. It was kind of this like moment of shock, but I'm stuck. And I try to lift myself up and I can't because I'm hanging by my wrist. I can't get my feet uh, on the fence to pull myself up. And I kind of look and I'm like, hmm, that's, that's probably not good. Uh, and so I literally just say in this tone, hey guys, uh, I'm stuck and I kind of need some help, right? And they're like, whatever. And then they kind of run over and realize what's going on. And so they have to lift me up, pull my arm off of the bar because I couldn't do anything to help myself. There was no hope. And we kind of, I kind of loosen up and I look at my arm and there's this hole and it's not bleeding. So I'm like, well, hey, let's see if we can keep playing baseball. <laughs> and I couldn't close my glove and uh, we had to go home and I put a Band-Aid on it and never told my mom. So... If she hears this now, she knows. But um, it was this moment of just being utterly stuck with nothing that I could do in pain and fear. And I know it's a silly example, but hell is going to be that same feeling, but a thousand times worse. Because here's the thing. The wicked are reaping what they sowed. They've chosen their own way. They've gone against God. But in that day of judgment, they're going to see the errors of their way. They're going to realize that God was offering them salvation, and yet they rejected it. They're going to know the truth of who God is, and yet they're going to be in hell, and they're going to want escape every single moment. They're going to want to be taken off that fence, out of that net, out of the mesh, out of the trap. They're going to want relief, and none's going to be available. They had a chance. They had their moment. There's going to be eternal longing and no escape will come. Their sin has led them to their demise. And Revelation 14, 10, 11 tells us something very similar. It tells us of the punishment awaiting the wicked. And it says that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Scary picture that hell is going to be inescapable, 
that we're going to want relief. We're going to want escape. And it's not going to come. There's no end in sight. Second, we're going to see that hell is this place of constant terror. Or next, it's not second, sorry. And we're going to read verses 11 through 14. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the part of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he's trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. So we have total darkness. We have inescapable punishment. And now this emotional torture. It's like the fears of a guilty soul surrounding them. It's like being circled by frightening things on every side. Everywhere the wicked turns, Bildad is saying, there's going to be darkness. Yet always feeling like something or someone is about to get them, wants them, is creeping around, and they're never at peace. Why? Because the wrath of God will consume the wicked in hell. Jesus has been holding it back for us here on earth. And the wrath of God is going to be like a close friend, but no friend at all because it's not leading towards joy and happiness or help. It's going to be more constant and ongoing suffering. And it's going to be emotionally tormenting. It's going to be anguish because we're going to be consumed by one horrible thing after another. Deadly, painful, and constant presence of disease. Build that St. Job, death isn't going to bring any relief. In fact, verse 14 says, it's not even like we pass on. It's not like we're just going into death. It's this picture of being torn from our tent and marched off. Hell is like de death taking us, taking the wicked from the security that they thought they had in their home, where he once felt safe and said, no, we're ushering you now into eternal punishment and judgment. And Matthew 22 tells us something similar as Jesus is telling a parable about this judgment coming. And he says, The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth is emotional agony. That there's going to be sorrow. That there's going to be grief, fear, sadness. But there's also going to be physical agony. That's the word gnashing of teeth. Have you ever done that when you were in pain? What did you do? Right? And you like grind your teeth. You like grimace. If I just hold my breath long enough, this pain will go away. This is a description that the pain is not going to go away. That it's going to be insatiable. That the pain and the terror will never be satisfied. Look, I know this isn't fun to hear. I know you're not feeling happy right now. I wasn't happy over the last two weeks either, right? But remember, it is good for us to be confronted with the reality of hell. The reality of the importance of a belief in Jesus Christ. And so I would love to stop right now, but Bildad doesn't. And so I want to continue on in his description of hell so that we see the full picture, okay? So next we're going to see that hell is a place of complete destruction, Verses 15 and 16. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. And do you just hear it piling on? Darkness, punishment, terror, and now destruction. 
The big idea here is that he is on the road to the end of himself. All that the wicked build is gone. Every safety, every security now is destroyed. Sulfur is the idea of fire and brimstone. And so if you've been around church for a while, you might have heard that a preacher might be known as a fire and brimstone preacher, right? That's the idea that they're always preaching about hell and how we want to escape from it. But this is the picture of divine judgment in scripture. Utter destruction. Bildad is using the imagery of fire to paint a picture of life being completely destroyed. And I want you to think about the fires that threatened the homes here in Azusa and Glendora a few years ago. Some of your homes were threatened. Some of you were removed from your homes and, and we tried to find a, help you find a place to stay while that was happening. And at that time, our offices were here on this campus and, and the day before those fires, we could come out and we could look at those hills and they were green and beautiful and there were trees and there was bushes and there was tons of wildlife. And yet when those fires came and scorched through, it reduced the wildlife and the greenery and the potentialities of life and growth to nothing. They were blackened. It was a dead mountain. That's Bildad's point. He's saying, Job, you used to be at the heart of a bustling society, full of life, full of energy, full of potential, full of growth, but it's all gone now. The fire of God has fallen upon you and destroyed it all. And Job, that is what your bed is going to be like. That is what the house of the wicked is going to be. And 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Destruction of life. No potential. Nothing good. No presence of Jesus to hold back judgment. It's like a desolate place destroyed, left in the ruins after a war, with no hope of ever being rebuilt. He says, Job, you're wicked, and your final resting place will be one of total and irreversible damage. Fifth, we see that hell is a place of terrible separation. In addition to all we've seen already about hell, it's also going to be the loneliest existence imaginable. Let's read verses 17 through 20. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. We don't use the words earth and street a lot anymore in, in this description or even east and west. I've heard people say like home and abroad, far and away, right? These ideas are getting after the totality of space. In other words, Job, because you're wicked, you will be forgotten by everyone on earth. You're going to be blotted out. Hell will be complete separation from all people. When the wicked person is thrust into darkness and death, there will be no memory of him. There'll be no son or kinsman to claim him. He's going to feel like no one will claim him and no one for him to claim. And Psalm 37, 20 tells us that the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. And Luke 16 is this parable that Jesus is telling us about heaven and hell. And there's this rich man and there's this man named Lazarus who is poor and they both die. 
And the rich man was living in luxury while he was on earth. And the poor man, Lazarus, just wished that he could have scraps from that fell from the table. And they die, and we see this picture of Lazarus with Abraham in paradise, feasting in heaven in the presence of God and the other saints. And then it kind of scans over to the rich man who's alone, who's in anguish, who's in torment, who's longing for someone to come and bring relief. And yet he knows that there's this huge chasm that cannot and will not be, be crossed. He's utterly alone and has no one to come and help. But even worse than that, even worse than being separated from other people, when a wicked man goes into death, he will also be separated from God. I read 2 Thessalonians 1.8, but verse 9 says, continues and says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. His power, his strength, his ability and, and a desire to step in, his presence will all be gone. Hell is the absence of communion with God where the wicked get the autonomy and self-centeredness that they thought they always wanted in life. And yet once they're confronted with it fully, they're not gonna want it anymore. And they're gonna long for others. They're gonna long for the Lord, but they're not gonna have any access. The chasm is too wide. The bridge was already created to be crossed and they didn't take it. And finally, Bildad moves away from the description of hell and talks about the certainty of hell. The sixth picture he paints for Job and for us is hell is surely the resting place of the wicked. And verse 21 tells us, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. All that he's mentioned so far, the eternal consequences of wickedness are for certain. It's the due penalty that awaits the unrighteous. Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. It's what wickedness deserves. Hell is a reality in God's created order and the wicked are destined for destruction. And Jesus speaks this way too. He speaks of this final judgment that's gonna happen. In Matthew 25, he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goat on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is saying, look, this is going to happen. This judgment is coming to all of us. And will we be separated on the left or we, will we be separated on the right? You see, there's a real place that the Bible calls hell. It's a terrible place created for the wicked. And every person will stand before God in judgment. It's the place that all sinners deserve to spend eternity in. There is a finality of Job's horrible fate and the fate of the wicked. The certainty of it was intended to weigh heavy on Job. And it should weigh heavy on us as we hear it this morning. And I don't know if you noticed, but there is no call for repentance here. He doesn't share the bad news so that he can offer any good news. He doesn't. It's like he's saying, hey, Job, I've brought you here today. I've gotten my word in. And I want you to know that God is in control. 
He's created this world with an order, and that order is to punish the evil and the wicked, and you are wicked. And the wicked are destined for hell, so that means you're destined for hell. There's no hope. That's all. Goodbye. That's how Bildad ends this. But thank God that that's not the end of the way he tells this story. That's not how he ends the story of sin and separation and hell. Scripture takes the reality of a divine judgment and the real place of judgment called hell. And he shares a rescue plan. One of redemption, one of grace, one of mercy. So what Bildad is missing, where he goes wrong, is that he doesn't have hope for the sinner. He doesn't know the power of the gospel. He cannot offer edification. He cannot bring hope. But scripture brings it in hope, in spades. So you've made it through the hard part. You've made it through the bad news. Now let me tell you the good news. The power of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, God does have the power to do something about our fate. He can change us from going on the road of hell to the road to heaven. And it says that if we would believe, anyone who believes can experience that salvation. And belief is agreeing with God's assessment about sin. So we take this reality of hell. We take this reality of our rebellion. We look at all the lists of words that the Bible uses for the wicked. And we say, honestly, we look at ourselves and we say, am I a sinner? Yes, check. Am I a trespasser against God's law? Yes, check. Am I a rebel who has gone my own way? Yes, check. Am I a child of wrath deserving of hell? Yes, check. Am I an enemy of God? Yes, check. And because of that, we agree with God that he will judge the works of each and every one of us. That on our own, we will be declared wicked. That yes, the due penalty of our sin, of our rebellion, is death and eternal punishment. Yes, the wicked do have a place created just for them called hell. And yes, it will be as bad as Bildad said as it is. But believing is also trusting that God didn't leave us there, that he made a way. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ worked on our behalf to reconcile sinners like you and I to God. See, God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus came to earth. He lived the life that we should have lived and were required to live. He died the death that you and I are supposed to die. And he rose in victory so that by his work we can be saved. God's posture towards people is not one of indifference. He is not unwilling to help. He has a deep love and desire to enter into our world and our space, to rescue us from wickedness and to rescue us from the very pits of hell that we're all destined to. And it's not because we're good people or because we did anything to deserve it like Bildad thinks. No, Romans 5, 8 through 9 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from whom the wrath of God flows. So yes, there is an order to God's world. And it does include the reality of punishment of sin and wickedness finally and eternally in hell. And we read how the wicked will be separated off to the left. 
But in that same passage in Matthew 25, we see that God's sheep, his people, those that do trust in his name, will be set aside to the right. And I want you to hear those words. Because he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God, rich in mercy, great in love, takes us out of the pit, rescues us, makes us alive through his son, Jesus Christ. He takes us off the road of hell and ushers us into his kingdom of paradise with him in heaven forever. So hear me, Bildad is wrong. There is a way to get off the road to hell. God, in fact, does care about the wicked. He does care about the sinner. He did go out of his way at great and terrible cross to move mountains, to move rocks so that we could be saved, so that the sinner does not have to go to hell. There is hope beyond death for those found in Jesus, just as Job was hoping. The righteous will be vindicated when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, God sent his son Jesus Christ was sent out on a rescue mission for the lost. He did act. And the question is, how will you respond to hearing today? It's good for us to sit through this. It's good to wrestle with the, health, the heaviness and the uncomfortableness of heaven and hell. So this morning, I just want to give you a few suggestions as we end our time. How should we respond? First, you need to check your ideas about hell. Does it line up with what scripture says? Are we thinking about it? Are we talking about it? Are we reflecting on it the way that we should? I don't think we are, and let me tell you why. Because I hear people all the time telling others to go to hell. Is that really what we want? Is that really what we mean? There's no enemy there's no person, no matter what they've done, that we want to experience this. It's going to be a horrible place. We should not want anyone to experience that. But to have the life-saving, rescuing work of Jesus applied to them. Or we say things like, my uncle passed away. And look, I get it. We're going to jump back into Job and we're going to talk about suffering. And one of the things that we're going to learn continually over and over is that how we talk to suffering people matter. When they're going through hard things, we don't just slap on the hard truth all the time. But I think we talk like that. We say, my uncle passed away. We do that and then we belittle the work that Jesus has done. Because if your uncle is a believer, he didn't pass on to death. He was rescued. He was ushered out of this sinful world into heaven where there's going to be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. And God has walked him in. But if my uncle passes and he doesn't know Jesus, he's going to be marched. He's going to be drug, dragged into hell. So I'm not saying you just blurt all that out. I'm saying don't let the world and our culture change the reality of hell. Because the Bible talks about it. And we cannot pretend that it isn't as bad as it really is. It's good to be in the house of mourning. It's good to consider these things. But just like everything else in life, we need to align, align our beliefs about hell with what scripture actually says. Second suggestion is to remember what's at stake. If that's the reality of our two destinies when we die, heaven or hell. 
we need to remember that this is why we pray for the lost every Sunday. This is why we take time out of our service to lift up those who do not know Jesus yet, who are on that road to hell and need Jesus to come in and save them and to rescue them. Charles Spurgeon once said, shun all views of future punishment that would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortals from the quenchless flame. You know, I waste a lot of, of nights of sleep worried about stuff. And you know, what's one of the things I don't worry about? The destiny of the five people that I was praying for today. And I should. I should be less concerned with the things of this world, less concerned with being more comfortable in this world, and be concerned with my friends and family members who don't know Jesus yet. It should change the way that we disciple our family, the things that we do with our time and with our money. We're so concerned to make sure that our kids get into the right college or have the right job or in a safe place. We're so concerned with temporary things and that they're comfortable here on earth. And we don't take time to talk with them about spiritual things, about heaven and hell. And yet Matthew 16, 26 reminds us, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? What's worth it? What good, what comfort is worth being rescued from hell and being given the gift of eternal life? Nothing, right? My final su suggestion is that we respond to the gospel. If you haven't called on the name of Jesus, if you haven't believed in him yet, if you haven't asked him to, to save you and rescue you from sin and the penalty of hell, do it today. It's simple. It's not easy. It's the hardest decision that we make. Because we're surrendering, we're, we're laying aside ourselves. But it's simple in that what we do is we believe and we've talked about what that means. And once we believe and we agree that we call on to the name of the Lord, we say, rescue us, save me, Lord. And then we repent. We say, Lord, I'm not going the way that I should. I want to make a 180, a U-turn and come towards you and believe in your ways, your truth, not my wisdom and not my understanding, not my ways. And then we live out this life of trust and faith and we live for him. We believe that he will take us from death to life. From hell to heaven. From enemy to friend. If you haven't done that yet, today is your day. Hear, respond, and call. But if you have done that, if you're a Christian, we need to respond in worship. We need to respond in gratitude and thanksgiving. We need to rejoice and be glad that he has rescued us from this fate, from this destiny. He's taken us out of the throes of hell and into his glorious presence in heaven. And we're gonna sing a song in just a little bit called All I Have is Christ. And it's gonna tell us, tell this story and we're gonna sing of it, of how God interceded, how he did provide a way of escape. And then we're gonna sing this life this song that talks about, um, so Father, use this ransom life any way that you choose. He's done the work. He's provided a way of escape, of rescue. And now we surrender our lives to him. So respond this morning. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this chapter in Job. God, that in the midst of suffering, God, that you awaken our hearts in our minds to the reality of life after death. 
And God, I thank you that there is a way to be vindicated. God, that you did care enough to act. And God, although the due penalty for each and every one of us because of our sin is hell, God, you've created a way to get out of that through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, may we respond this morning. May we consider what your word says. God, may you move us to act. God, we ask all of this in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus.